sign this is it uh, else but the cross because ultimately there's Jesus um, and as we're going to learn today the Pharisees um, are looking for a sign uh, and Jesus is going to talk about Jonah and Solomon in Matthews 12 38 to 45 so let's go to the first slide and talk about it but first we need to do a quick review and it's going to be just a quick one it's important to keep things in context uh, especially today we can kind of sense um, uh, a um, you know, an element of fruit. Everything Jesus says kind of connects and makes sense. The, the writers of the Bible, when they write things and, and they're remembering things, I think they put things together as it makes sense, as it flows. And so Jesus just finishing talking about fruit again, I, I think it flows. There's a reason why he's bringing that up in context of where he's, what he's dealing with in the situation that he's in. Um, and so last week he talked about the fruit. You know, and, and more specifically, people, their spiritual well-being, their spiritual health. And he says, in order to kind of gauge the health of a person's spirit, it is to look at the words, quality of words used. And we also looked at other scriptures um, talking about, you know, behavior and, uh, and whatnot as well as words. But, uh, but words indeed are a strong indication, especially the words you use when you're not guarding yourself, when you're ah, just relaxing and letting go. Kind of words you use, it demonstrates kind of the health of the heart. And he compares this to a tree. And the tree is the same way. Uh, in fact, we were talking, me and Danny talking about last week about how so, so, many, so many times in our culture, we take, uh, we want to fix the symptoms and not the problem. And so uh, it's like taking a tree and taking the tree and like, well, that's bad fruit. And saying, well, let's just polish the fruit. And then the tree keeps on producing bad fruit, but you polish it and preserve it, but it's maybe undersized, maybe it's foul, maybe it just tastes bad, but you, you just deal with it. Yeah. But what you should do is fix the, fix the real problem. The real problem is down deep in the tree. So if you can give the tree medicine or fix it or maybe take it out and replace it with a good tree that can produce good fruit, whatever the situation is, it, it seems odd to actually just kind of polish over the symptoms and not deal with the real problem. And I think spiritually, I think that would work when we look at ourselves individually. Are we just trying to polish our dodgy fruit or are we interested in real deep spiritual cleansing and healing? In our culture, society, I think the same thing can be said. You know, I think we were talking about me and Danny, we're talking about issues in society and how a lot of times, you know, they, you know, our society, they want to make quick little changes in behavior. And I think cultural, especially psychological behavioralism is a big part of that. If you change the person's behavior, ultimately it'll change the heart. So in their sense, they're thinking, well, just take the fruit and polish it. And if you keep polishing the fruit enough, then ultimately the person will change or the people will change or the society will change. And I disagree with that. I think, you know, we need spiritual revival. We need God. We need Jesus. We need sensitivity to God in our culture, God in our life, God in and everything in us. And that's what the church responsibility is to do, is to make God alive in people's lives, in their minds, to, to give the gospel, to give God. And so the um, more we let you know, the deciders of our culture, society, make decisions that are based upon contrary theories, 
that's going to, they're not going to have any real lasting solutions. But there's a little cultural, political commentary on what we learned last week, but I'll also bring it together in context where we are today. Next slide. Which begins in verse 38 of Matthew 12, where the Pharisees, it says here, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Jesus, um, again, you know, he's here being challenged about the law and, and what ought, ought not to be done by the, by the by, you know, by the, Jesus and his disciples, specifically like the Sabbath and healing and whatnot, and of course bringing a man to be healed on the Sabbath. Is this the right thing to do? And Jesus is saying, look, all I'm doing is fulfilling scriptures, fulfilling prophecies, and all I'm doing is basically giving evidence of God, his spirit. And he, and he basically summed it up by saying, if you reject these miracles, if you reject what God's doing here, then man, you're in a bad place. And he calls it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because you can be wrong about me, you can say even wrong things about me, you can have wrong ideas, you can have bad doctrine and bad theology about me, and God can still forgive you. But you do not want to turn your back on God. And that's basically this warning. And so the Pharisees are like, oh, well, speaking of things to see, speaking of evidences, we want more. We're not satisfied. Again, we want to see God stick his face through the clouds, and then we'll be satisfied, kind of comments. And so that's what they say. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They want to see something cheeky. You know, they want to see something clear and something obvious. But what? What? What, what, what they've seen. What, what, I mean, we're going to go through and look at what they've seen, but first, let's look at Jesus' response and look at this a little bit more before we look at what Jesus has already done so far. He answers and says, a wicked and adulterous faithless, that's what adulterous means, means faithless. It's spiritually speaking in regards to, to turning your back, being faithless or, or cheating on God, if you will. A wicked and evil, one that just, uh, it speaks of the complete contrast, complete opposite of good. You're just so not good. Everything you do, your practice is just, it's wicked and, and it's faithless. It's, it's, and this is a big theme he's going to bring up, this generation, this problem in culture, problem in society. Um, here, of course, again, they're looking for a sign or miracles. It speaks of miracles or wonders, flashing lights, more more, you know, to entertain them, more for them to see, more than for them to ponder and philosophize about. That's what they want. They want more material, more things to talk about, to read the newspapers, to see on television, to, to tickle their interest. Come on, Jesus, give us some more things to, to ooh, ponder and think about and, and theorize about. They're not looking for God. They're looking for entertainment. More miracles, wonders, which God... But these signs, of course are intended to authenticate. And they did authenticate Jesus. And this must be just driving Jesus crazy. Have I not done enough? Hasn't God not spoken loud enough? Has not God demonstrated enough in these miracles and these wonders that I've already performed? These things that are God authenticating, proving that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is who he says he is. Okay? Um, So basically what they're asking is, how can we know that you're for real? Um, in his response, notice he says, uh, it's a wicked and faithless generation that asks for a sign. He didn't say all who ask for signs or a sign are wicked and adulterous. What he's saying is, this is a wicked generation. And they're going to just keep on asking and asking and asking. They'll be satisfied. 
Oh, but I'm wondering. Oh, but I'm thinking. Oh, but I'm pondering. Oh, but I'm considering the options. But they're wicked and they're adulterous. They need to be changed to the heart, to the core. So you can, get, you can polish their fruit all day long and you can show them good fruit all day long and they're going to still produce dodgy fruit. But he's not saying, what he's not saying is that if you ask, you're automatically wicked or adulterous. It's okay to ask. It's all right to have doubts and questions. We have Doubting Thomas and the other apostles and disciples who had a lot of questions and issues. And, and, and when Paul, he had questions asked to him, he answered them. Jesus answered questions. Both, I mean, you could tell by his response whether or not he, he understood whether a person asked questions that was genuine or disingenuous. But it's okay to have doubts, okay to have questions. Of course, John the Baptist, he sent his disciples to have Jesus questions. And Jesus answered as if they were a genuine, honest question that needed to be answered. And I do believe, therefore, to ask questions, to ask to see God, to see some evidence, some proof, that's all right. To, to, in fact, for a Christian, I think it's comforting. I think it's very, it's, it's a faith-building exercise to really look at the evidences and just, oh, God, you're amazing. Oh, God, you are so true. Oh, God, you are just so amazing. It's worship, if you will. And I think apologetics, thinking about God in these ways, if you, you know, what, it's, it's a form of worship. But what he's saying here, though, is however, there is a group that's just dodgy, dodgy trees that need to be healed. And they're going to constantly pretend, they're going to claim that they're looking. And they're going to claim there's not enough, they're not sufficient answers. There's not sufficient reason to believe in God. But it's not for any other reason, but because they're dodgy trees. They need to be healed, they need to be cured. So the, really, the bottom line is this, the question really is this, the thing is this, as I put up there. What you do when you receive the evidence, the sufficient answers, the signs, that's the fruit. The faithful person receives and believes. A wicked, adulterous person, you know, he's talking about this generation, of course, rejects God and they expects him to dazzle them. So looking for more. Hmm, still haven't really made up my mind yet. Next slide, please. So do we need to start all over again? Okay, do we need to start from the beginning? I mean, I, I went through and I Googled all the different miracles and wonders and signs in the New Testament. And I just, again, thousands. It's just unbelievable. So I decided, you know what, let's just look at what we've dealt with in Matthew <laughs> alone. So, so far in our study in Matthew alone, we've already seen, but not limited to, because we can always go in the fine details like I do sometimes and say, but isn't that just wonderful? Isn't that just amazing that God did? Like, for instance, up on the bottom here, how he had this ability, just little, little sub-notes here and there. He knew what they were thinking. What does that mean? He knew what they were thinking. Can you know what anybody else is thinking? You can kind of guess by their behavior what somebody's, what's going on in somebody's mind, by their facial expression or not. But God actually knew, Jesus actually knew word for word what was going on in their mind. That is a miracle. <laughs> That's a sign and a wonder. But putting that stuff aside, let's look at what's been listed. He, um, of course, first of all, we got the uh, control of nature, the calming of the storm. That's pretty massive. Calming a storm is, I mean, that'd be great. Especially for, the, especially for the golf game. I would love Jesus to hang out with me and calm the storm when I need to go golfing. But we've seen that already in Matthew 8. Healings, lots of healings. In fact, most of it's been healings. You know, Matthew 8, man of leprosy. Matthew 8 again, a Roman centurion servant. Matthew 8 again, Peter's mother-in-law. Matthew 8 again, in one chapter, four healings. Two men possessed with the devils or demons, whatever, healed. 
Matthew 9, we've got four more. Man with palsy, healed. Woman with this issue of bleeding, healed. Two blind men, healed. Um, a dumb devil-possessed man, which we dealt with not too long ago, healed. And then, of course, there's this raising of the dead situation, which is a pretty miraculous thing, yeah? Raising the dead, pretty miraculous, even by today's standard and technology. You know, Yarius or Jarius, however you want to say his name, his daughter, healed. So just taking those things that we've seen just in Matthew from beginning to where we are now, that's pretty good evidence. You're looking for more? Crazy enough. Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. And also, like I said, I put the miscellaneous stuff. The fact that he was born of a virgin, not normal. The Holy Spirit descending upon him, pretty amazing sign. Yeah, some pretty cool stuff there. Next slide, please. So, there, there is sufficient evidence. There is sufficient reason to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So not to believe is to be in a, in a real dangerous place. And he's going to basically say that and confirm that in the next few verses. So he's going to compare himself first to Jonah. So he's like, you want a sign? Okay. Even though he's given, like I put in the first little bit, he says, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And of course, I put in comments down below, funny Jesus, none will be given. He already gave a ton of them. He's already given a ton. And he will continue to give plenty of signs. But he said, okay, well, here, here's the ultimate sign. Look for this. You don't believe in the healings. You don't believe in the calming of the sea. In the, you don't believe in the raising of the dead. <laughs> Maybe it was a fluke, okay? But here is the ultimate, the ultimate sign. None will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Again, in the grave, heart of the earth. He'll be dead. Now, what's, what's amazing about this is those other ones, he didn't prophesize about it specifically before he did his miracles. They could have been coincidences. But this right here, he is naming it. He is literally saying prophetically, this will happen. Take my word for it. And it's not just a little thing. Like, rest assured, on the third day of the sixth month of the eighth year, I will wake up and get out of my bed. It's not anything just common. What he's talking about here is something pretty miraculous. In fact, it's out of this world. In fact, this is the heart and soul and core of Christianity, this resurrection. So he's saying this is a massive event that's going to happen. This is big time. He's prophesying about it so you can watch it. You can prepare for it. You can expect it. And it's, a, it's, 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 it's amazing. It's huge. So he, said, and he says, now, if you refuse to accept this bit of evidence, you've got some serious problems. That's what he's going to say here in a second. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So again, talking about the end times, you know, the time of the great judgment, you know, in the, yet in the future. He's going to talk about the people in Nineveh, who were the enemy, cruel enemy of Israel, hated and feared by Israel. But they're going to be able to be in a, in a better place as far as judgment's concerned. Why? Because they repented. And that's what Jesus says. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah preached. He proclaimed. They changed. These people here 
at this time, these Pharisees and, and wise guys of the Jewish law are hearing, but they're not repenting. They're not changing. Jonah, he got spit up from a fish. He's walking about looking like a ghost. Shouts out, repent. Or he didn't even say repent, in fact. He says, you're going to be judged. He didn't, say, he didn't talk about anything about repentance. He says, you're going to be wiped out and God's going to take you out. But they pleaded with God and, and they repented. They changed their behavior. They changed their mind. They changed their hearts. They, there was change, genuine, real change. And because of that, they're in a better place than people who hear and refuse. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's the ultimate sign. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the evidence? Are you going to repent? And what he's supposing here is probably not. Now, something greater than Jonah is here. So what do you do with this information, the preaching that you received about the resurrection? It's, it's a kind of fruit in your heart. It produces belief, total trust in God, you know. But it is, it's a spiritual thing. It's a hard thing. It goes deep, deep inside. And this resurrection is important. It's a big part of who we are as Christians. And it informs our life, not just here on earth, but in the afterlife as well. And it is indeed the ultimate sign. It's the one that counts, the resurrection. And as he says here, just as Jonah came out of the huge fish, so does Jesus would come out of the grave. I mean, this, this supposes, this is Jesus pointing towards the resurrection. Not just his resurrection, but the resurrection of death in general, which we'll see in just a few moments. And yes, like I said, it's hard to believe. It's a crazy miracle. And he's prophesying something that's not common, not something that's a general thing, event, but something that's mega. And so maybe for a lot of us, seeing is believing. And it's kind of hard to think, wow, has that really happened? Is that really possible? But the reality is the best bit of truth in all time. It's the best bit of truth of all history, the fact that Jesus died and rose from the grave. And, and it was, I should have put the verse, but I didn't, but it was said also in the New Testament, um, uh, Jesus said it to his disciples, he goes, you know, better is he who, who doesn't see and believes, you know? And that's us. We, we haven't seen the evidence firsthand like, the, like the, so many people, including his apostles and disciples. But yet, because we believe the history, believe the tradition's been passed on, we're in a better place as far as trust is concerned and faithfulness is concerned. So really quick, I want to talk about the resurrection. And I, and I'm going to, and I call this portion resurrection versus substance materialism. And the reason why I'm saying that is because, again, not only is this like a pretty mega thing, this whole idea of like predicting his death and resurrection, but also kind of goes against a certain camp a certain sect of Jewish um, um, thinkers, the, the Sadducees, who didn't believe, who rejected um, spiritual things. They rejected the supernatural. Yes, it seems kind of crazy, but I hate to say it, but there's people in the church. There's theologians in the church, the so-called Christians in the church today, and who still reject supernatural things. And, and today we call it substance materialism. And that basically means there's no supernatural. There's just material things. There's just, and it's interaction with one another. And, and, and I call them pitiful people, not to be mean and cruel, but because Jesus called them pitiful people at the very, well, actually, Paul calls them pitiful people at the end of 1 Corinthians. So the pitiful people. And there's a liberal sect of Jews that say there's no resurrection. And that, I think, who Jesus is, is, is possibly speaking to at this point. Paul responds below um, to that. You know, is there a resurrection or not? Uh, today, like I said, there's liberal theologians who, who also adhere to substance materialism, which makes some, some reclaim that there is no actual resurrection. 
Um, when we talk about resurrection of death and the afterlife, it's just storytelling. It's not real. The, people actually believe that today. And here was the first Corinthians. This is Paul's response to that. He says, but if we preach that Christ is not or has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Okay, that's what we're preaching. That's what we're saying. Again, what he's, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is it's all about evidence and what you believe and what's real, what's true. If there is no resurrection, then what Jesus said earlier to the Pharisees is a lie. Because he said that's what's going to happen. He's going to die and resurrect. That's mega, major evidence. But there's already, just not even 100 years, not even 20, 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, already people saying, rejecting the evidence within even the church. So-called Christians, so-called thinkers, so-called sects of Christianity, so-called theologians. And that's happened right away after Jesus' death and resurrection and still going on today. But he's saying here, but why are we claiming that Jesus resurrected from the dead if there's no such thing as resurrection? It's contradictory. It's a lie. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. It's useless. And guess what? So is your faith. It's like your faith, your trust in God, everything that you have been preached, told, and believed is based upon this very important incident or, 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 or event, the resurrection. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses. So not only is your faith bogus, but we're bogus. We're false witnesses. We're liars. Because that's what they're saying. They're going around telling people Jesus was dead and he was resurrected. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, in fact, the dead. Wait, but if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. So again, if God didn't raise Jesus, then... Nobody's going to be raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. For you are still in your sins. Again, when Jesus died, he died, he conquered sin and the death, and he was the ultimate sacrifice, atoning sacrifice of our sins. So all that kind of fits together. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. So basically, if your hope... The, if you're trusting the story, you know what I'm saying? And, that's what, and that kind of goes today with, with, with a lot of the churches that adhere to liberal theology. It's just stories. And if your hope is in just these little stories, oh, it's a cute story. We go to church and learn the cute stories. They're meaningless, but they're cute stories. And they make us feel good for a moment. If that is it, but when you die, it's over, and there's no hope. There's no hope for eternal life. Then we are the most pitiful people in the world. That's what Paul is saying here. We are all people most to be pitied. But we're not pitiful people. Because we don't say these are just cute little stories. We say this is the truth. Jesus has said it. He's prophesied it. He's proclaimed it. He is. He did do it. He died. There's, there's evidence. There's proof. We've seen it. We talk about it. It may have happened a long time ago, but you know what? History has declared it happened. And we look back and we appreciate the rich tradition of Christianity that's, that's faithfully passed this message on from generation to generation. And we say Jesus did die. He did rise from the grave. And because of that, there is hope for us. Next slide. And he also compares himself to Solomon. In Matthew 12, 42, the queen of the south, the queen of, of, of Sheba, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. This queen, this queen, he's not even a Jewish woman, a black woman, 
from Egypt. Ooh. You know, she's going to stand against the, the good Jewish boys here who are faithless, adulterous, turn their backs against God and condemn it. Why? Well, let's look at her character. Let's look at what she has done. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. She came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. There's a little bit of information that I want to develop, but I also want to look at the story as it's found in the story. The historical event as it's found in 1 Kings 10. So uh, 1 Kings 10, and here are all my asterisks just in case you guys are interested. Um, the details below, as it says there, all those asterisks point to the, the, the text in first. So we're going to tie it together, okay? So in 1 Kings 10, 1 through 9, this is what we see of Queen of Sheba, or the Queen of the South. When the Queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, which brought honor to the name of the Lord. Okay, so the first thing is we saw is Solomon honored the Lord with great wisdom. Okay, so God's honored. God's getting glory. God's getting credit. She hears about this. She wants to go and find out for herself. What's happening? So she's asking questions. She's testing it. She came to test him with hard questions. She arrived in Jerusalem, and there's other, I'm cutting some of it out just to simplify it. When she met with Solomon, she talked with him about everything she had on her mind. Solomon had answers for all of her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba realized how very wise Solomon was, and when she saw the palace he had built, she was overwhelmed. She exclaimed to the king, everything I heard in my country about your achievements and wisdom is true. Simple as that. She questions, she went, she asked, she got the answers, and she believed it. She didn't overcomplicate it. She didn't, because of her own, you know, worldview, presuppositions, and whatever. She heard it, she tested it, it was true, there's no denying it. She says, I didn't believe what was said until I arrived here and saw it with my own eyes. Praise the Lord. This is from the mouth of, of a Gentile woman, a black woman did that. Praise the Lord, your God who delights in you and has placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He had made you king so you can rule with justice and righteousness. So again, to sum it up, we've got the situation where a woman, a Gentile woman, a woman, you know what I'm saying? For the, for the Jewish mentality, that's like, uh, she was interested. She sought, she traveled. She went from the ends of the earth to find Solomon because he honored the Lord with his wisdom. She tested, what's going on here? She, she went out of her way to find the truth. And when she saw the evidence, she was convinced and believed. And then glory went to God, who supplied Solomon with great wisdom. Okay, so that's some information about what Jesus is saying here, about Jonah, first of all, and then you know the situation with the queen of the south and Solomon. Next slide. So to kind of put it in now into perspective, you got the... The Ninevites, who repented because of the preaching of Jonah. Okay? And then now we got something greater than Jonah. I put Solomon here. I'm sorry about that. It should be Jonah. And then we have the queen of the south, who sought out Solomon and found the truth and believed and gave glory to God. And now something greater than, sorry, I should be Solomon, is here. So swap Solomon there and Jonah there, and we'll, we'll be in good shape. Okay? 
This is summing up what Jesus is talking about here. Something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon, but yet the people of Nineveh repented when they heard. They heard, repented, they changed. The queen of Sheba, she came, she traveled, she saw, she, she saw the evidence, she believed. But yet something greater is here, and you won't believe, you refuse to believe. Why is that? Well, the real problem with this wicked generation is this. Matthew 12, 43. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid or desert places, dry places, lifeless places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, at leisure, to be idle, to be unoccupied, to be empty. So spiritually void. I've been healed. I went to go see a a faith healer. I went to a psychic. I went to the medicine man, whatever it may be. And I feel so much better now, but spiritually empty. That's the situation we have here. Swept clean and put in order. So even in the flesh, I take my diet pills and I run and I jog and I jump and I, you know, play lots of golf and or whatever, you know, I do whatever. And I'm, I'm, I feel good about myself. But still, spiritually empty. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. What are these spirits? Bad habits, sin, temptations, bad behavior, bad attitude, bad personality, bad mentality, bad theology. It could be all kinds of things. And they go in and live there. So that old bad habit that you so hated, want to get rid of, comes back. But guess what? Seven more bad habits come with it. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So we attempt to clean up our lives without filling up the void with the Holy Spirit. Then we can open ourselves to the risk of past sins, spirits, whatever you want to call it, behavior, issues, problems, things that we hated about ourselves that brought us to the end of ourselves. If we don't fill that with the Holy Spirit, that void, those things can just as easily come back because the flesh can't control it. Like we learned yesterday, last week about the fruit of the, the flesh. We tried to do things in the flesh and we failed and miserable things happen. But when the Holy Spirit takes over, love, joy, peace, patience, all these wonderful things happen. Next slide. Oh, we're almost done. So, we'll my notes. So, the wicked generation, this is a term he brings up, I think, whoa, we'll hear this four times. So I want to talk about this in completion, in conclusion. What, this wicked generation, it's a warning. He's warning this people. And he's calling them a generation. It's like a, it's a whole group of cultural people of similar age and, and, and kind of you know, situations and dealings of society. But he, but he mentions them four times. First in verse 39, a wicked adulteress or faithless. I put that in there as well to remind us that means adulteress. To be faithless, turn their backs on God, be a cheater on God. They ask for a sign, okay? Always asking, but never repenting. Always, mm, interesting. I'll watch the BBC program on Jesus and see what I think about it. Eh, or interesting story. You know, that kinds of stuff, right? And then we have verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with his generation. The Ninevites, they repented. But this wicked generation would not. So it's faithless, turns back against God. It practices wickedness. It refuses to repent. The queen of south will rise up 
and at the judgment with his generation and condemn it. She, the queen of south, asked, sought, received, and believed. But this generation will not. Okay, so they're always asking but never repenting. Practice of wickedness, faithlessness. Don't repent. When they see God and have experienced God, they still won't believe him, still won't receive him. That's the people he's dealing with here, the Pharisees and who he's, con- he's confronting right now. Very similar to maybe some people that we may know that we should be praying for <laughs> in our own society, in our own lives. And then the last one, Matthew twelve forty five. The final condition that person is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. So to kind of sum, to complete it, to sum it up. If we don't seek, listen, repent, believe, then become filled with God, we will never get better. So we need to be open. Seek God. Listen to him when he speaks. Change, repent, believe. And we need to be filled with God, his Holy Spirit. If we do not, we'll never get better. We'll never produce good fruit. We'll be dodgy trees that will constantly produce poor fruit that will have to be polished before presented. In fact, as he says here, we could also end up possibly in a worse state. The harder we try in the flesh, the more broken, the more burnt out, the more tired we will be, we will get. And the problems will multiply. And last slide, of course, if it is important to you, you'll find a way. If not, you'll find an excuse. Now, I happened to stumble upon that when I was looking for the image for the first slide, because that was made by the same person, I think. But I thought it's kind of an interesting little thing to put in the end. Because kind of what we're talking about here is just it's disciplines. It's like, you know, what you really want, what's really important to you, you're going to put a lot of effort into. Jesus is giving us, he's confronting us, he's dealing with us with very serious issues. Um, and of course, we could feel like we belong to the disciples group, which I hope we do. But there's certain parts of us where we feel like we belong to the Pharisee group. And we feel like we're conflicted, being confronted right now. Wherever you feel, you know, we still need to be. I imagine the disciples are hearing Jesus preaching, and they're probably still analyzing themselves and going, "Yeah, Jesus, I know you're talking the Pharisees right now, but I'm going to hear this for myself, and I'm going to think, you know, am I am I there? You know, do I really believe? Am I really there? Do I really are? You, am I really filled with your Holy Spirit? Do I really practice the disciplines of walking with Jesus? You know, and I'm sure they were fine." Sure, I'm sure they, 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 they totally were amazing disciples. But I'm sure it's also wise to sit and reflect and sit and think about these things. To sit and to really contemplate. Because we don't want to be like the Pharisees who think they're all right. Because I'm sure the Pharisees thought they were more than all right. I'm sure the Pharisees thought they were great. But yet Jesus is sitting there rattling their cage. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Nineveh is in better shape than you are. Come on, guys. Queen of Sheba, you know, she's better off than you guys are. Come on, guys, listen to what I'm saying here. But of course, what we see here also is just this refusal. Jesus proved himself. He proved himself. God authenticated through miracles and evidences and wonders and signs. But their heart was so cold that they refused to be moved. I guess that's another one to conclude it with. Make sure our hearts aren't so cold. Because, I mean, we all deal with people of the world. Maybe we're evangelizing. Maybe we're witnessing to certain people in our lives. And we know what it's like to, have, to be rejected, to be, to be pushed back because we're dealing with a cold heart, a resistant heart. And it, it hurts. This is what Jesus is dealing with. 
So if Jesus is dealing with us, maybe small issues, discipleship issues, maybe he wants to deal with a certain personal holiness issue in our lives, but yet we, we refuse him with a cold heart, let's not do that. And also when we're dealing with people in our lives and realize that they're just turned off to Jesus, they don't want to hear about Jesus, realize that Jesus dealt with that as well. But like we learned in the past, we give them the gospel. And we realize it's not our responsibility to convert them. It's God's responsibility. We just give them the truth. We give them the truth. We give them the gospel. We give them the good news. And we let God do the work.